0: Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Abraham humbled and lowered himself as a brother to his nephew Lot to make peace. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or on iTunes. Now here's Tom Cantor with today's teaching from the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis.
1: Now, we come to chapter 14. That's a pretty long review. All right, we come to chapter 14. We have 12 verses in this chapter that we read. And this is a history. This is a history of a war between a group of four kings against another group of five kings. That's why it's called the War of the Kings. So these first 12 verses are this history of this War of the Kings. And this may have been what, we don't know, but this may have been really the first world war. This may have been World War I since it involved the greater part of the inhabited world, or it may not have been the first war, but it's the first war that's recorded in the Bible. But the reason the details of this particular war are recorded for us is that by understanding the details of the war, it brings us into a knowledge of Abraham's involvement in it. And this gives us now another wonderful window into Abraham's life who is the one that God wants us to follow here. So in this history, we're going to see three points about Abraham. First, Abraham's desire to rescue Lot. That was very significant. Second, Abraham's acceptance of Melchizedek, the king of peace. And third, Abraham's rejection of the king of Sodom. So this is the points that, that are going to call to our attention as we get into this. And in these verses, we have the names of these all these people, very detailed. They never appear again in Scripture, these kings. Every city at that time evidently had a king. In verse 2, there were five kings that were over five cities. In verse 4, we read that for 12 years, those five kings had served one king, Loarmir, who was king over the city of Elam. And verse 4 tells us that after 12 years, the five kings who were serving Kedolormer had said that they had had enough. They were fed up, and they were going to rebel against the king in the 13th year, Kedolormer. So those five kings who rebelled were in the south. They were near the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And Kedolormer is located in the north, along with his three other allies who came down with him to stop the rebellion, crush the rebellion. So the war is described in verses 5 through 11, and from the, sequences, the sequence of the cities that are destroyed, you look at them on a map, we can see that this is just a march south. Rather, we don't know, but it appears it's a rather quick march south. And so first they attack the Rephaims, who were uh, evidently a tribe of giants that went extinct. Then they come to Asheroth-Kanaim, and it's mentioned that this is the east of Jordan. This is where Og, we'll find later, king of Bashan, the Amorites, uh, lived, who we read about in Deuteronomy and in Psalms. March keeps going southward. It's described then to come to the Zuzims, the Ham, the Emims, the Horites. And uh, then they seem to double back, and they conquer the Amalekites, and then the Amorites, who lived on the west side of the Dead Sea, get involved in the slaughter. And the description of this war is a little bit like a blitzkrieg. <laughs> it's going very quick. Cities falling one right after the other. And destruction in the wake of Kedolormir with his three confederate kings. And it seems in verse 8 that Kedolormir and his three kings, they took some time, evidently, to regroup in this, the Vale of Siddim. And verses 7 and 8 tell us that there is, in that vale where the five kings, that include the king of Sodom and King Gomorrah, they join the battle there against King de Lormer with his three kings. So that's why it's five kings against four kings. And in that place seems to be the place of the decisive battle, the last battle in this great uh, venture. And what happened in that battle is described to us in verse 10, as we're told in, in the vale of Siddam, there were slime pits or pools of asphalt, And this seems to be an area where there is asphalt. As a matter of fact, pockets of asphalt have been found in the bottom of the Dead Sea. So, anyway, not that we need confirmation, but anyway. So, we're told in verse 10 that when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with their armies, when they fled from Kedolomir, that they fell into these pools of asphalt. Maybe some of the army drowned. We don't know. Like quicksand. Maybe they just became trapped and they became an easy easy people to slaughter. And then the rest of them ran up into the mountain for their lives. And so then we're told in verse 11 that Kedolormer took the spoils from Sodom and Gomorrah and he starts back home. He's done. He's finished. So in verse 12, we're told that among their captives, Kedolormer took Lot and everything he had as well. So much for his things. And he starts back home. And he has, so we can picture it now, K. de Lorimer has succeeded. He has successfully crushed the rebellion. And he's now leading his victorious army back home. His army is strong. His army is large. His army is encouraged. His army is rested up. His army is enriched with the spoils of war. They were fresh from blood and they had riches they had women they had slaves and this army was now as the last word in verse 12 tells us departed so they're on their way home and they're looking forward to returning home with all the reports of their war and evidences of their good great victories in the south and they're looking forward to the celebrations and distributing all the wealth and lot was among them lot was among the spoils and all of lot's wealth was also there because lot was a slave of war he was a captive And so what happens, verse 13, is someone comes and tells that someone who is described as one who had escaped. And he brings Abram the report of what had happened. Now, we don't know if this man who came to Abram escaped from being captured by fleeing to the mountains, or if he had escaped after he was captured. He's just described as one who escaped. And he tells Abram. So first we see Abram is described here as Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time this word is used in the Bible, Hebrew. The word Hebrew is not at all clear what it means. It comes, seems to come from a root that means to cross over. So it's been said that the word means crossing over the Euphrates, a person who crosses over. It's also been said that this means a person of dusty feet. It may, I don't know, it may describe, that's how Dr. Yamaguchi used to describe it at Miami. But anyway, or it could mean the descendants of this man we don't know anything about named Heber, other than he was the grandson of Noah through Shem. But the name Hebrew seems to have something to do with uh, not Hebrew national hot dogs, but <laughs> which Costco got rid of it was a great shame it doesn't matter, but it seems to have something to do with the meaning of a person who was from another place from another place. Now we read there that there was this lone Amorite uh, there in this area who was confederate with Abraham, and that there's no indication at all that that confederacy meant anything because when Abraham goes after. Uh, To recover Lot, there's no indication that this Amorite is anywhere to be found. So he's not doesn't seem to be a part of Abraham's military uh, overture to save Lot. Now, as escapee is bringing Abraham this report of what happened in verse 14, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. So what we read here in verse 14 is a description of Abraham that as soon as he hears that Lot is taken, Abraham just springs up into action. Springs, he's launching this military campaign. It seems suicidal. I mean, Abraham, what in the world is he doing? He only has 318 men, armed men, and he's gonna go fight an army that we don't know, is probably in the tens of thousands. And he's gonna challenge this great army with 318 men? This army that Abraham's gonna challenge here, they're fresh from blood. They've got the taste of blood in their mouth. The army is the best of the best. They're the survivors of all those many wars. They perfected their military strategies. Their techniques have been tried and proven. They're an invincible fighting force. They're a machine. And the army that Abraham is going to go challenge is greatly encouraged. They're brave. They're encouraged to think there's no one they can't conquer. They, have, have, they haven't lost a war. And so this is the Goliath army that Abraham is going to go challenge. And as for Abraham, he's only got 318 men who had no experience in war. This is the only war that we read about that Abraham was ever involved in. And we have to think of what it meant in verse 14 when it says that Abraham's servants were trained. I don't know what they were trained in. Maybe they'd never seen battle before where they trained in military operations. So with all this against Abraham, it looks to everyone that Abraham and his men are going to be slaughtered by the army of Kedaloramir. Why was Abraham willing to risk his life and the lives of his men? Was Abraham risking his life to save his wife, Sarah? No, she had not been taken. Abraham had no reason to risk his life for save Sarah. as Sarah was not taken captive. Was Abraham being threatened by this great army of Kedol Aramir and he had to fight to defend his house? No, that army was finished. They were going home and he was not in danger of being attacked. He had no reason to risk his life to defend his house What was Abraham risking his life for? To save Lot? Lot, who had the quarrel with him. Lot, who took advantage of Abraham and took all the best grazing land and left Abraham with nothing. Lot, who pushed Abraham away and separated himself from Abraham and separated himself from Abraham's purity of his life and chose to live among the Sodomites. Abraham should walk into what looks like sudden death with just 318 men against tens of thousands to save Lot. That's what we read in verse 14. As Soon as Abraham hears the news, just like that, not even a thought. He says, let's go, let's go. What fearlessness, what bravery, what courage is this fearless, brave, courageous Abraham? The same one we read about turned back in Genesis 12, 11-13. It came to pass, is near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians see thee, they'll save this his wife, they'll kill me, save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, may be well with me for thy sake. My soul shall live because of thee. That Abraham, is that the one we're talking about in chapter 12? So afraid of his own shadow? Egypt! We're going to. Be, we're forced to go into Egypt. Chapter twelve. He's in a panic attack. He can't breathe. He's imagining the Egyptians are going to kill me to get my beautiful wife. In chapter twelve, he's hiding behind his wife's skirt as a scared little boy. He's saying, Sarah, lie for me, lie for me. You tell him you're just my sister. Don't tell him you're my wife. Leave me. Let them leave me alone. If you don't do this, they'll kill me. It's better for you to become immorally defiled by that filthy lecher, Pharaoh, as long as my life is not at risk. <laughs> I'm afraid to die, Sarah. Give yourself up to adultery and defilement. Become the wife of Pharaoh to save me alive. I don't want to die, Sarah. Save me, Sarah. Abraham first, Sarah last. <laughs> you know? If you love me, Sarah, do it for me. I'm afraid to die. Save me, Sarah. It's hard for us to read all these cowardly words of Abraham afraid to die, begging his wife with words like, that it may be well with me, that my soul shall live because of thee. In chapter 12, we saw an Abraham that was not right. In chapter 12, we saw a fearful, cowardly Abraham, not willing to risk his life to save his own wife, Sarah, from being taken captive. Is this the same Abraham? In chapter 14, 14, where we read, he hears this and, and he arms his train service. What happened? How did the fearful, cowardly, quivering Abraham, afraid of the thought that he might die, In chapter 12, become the fearless, brave, courageous Abraham, willing to risk his life against great odds for a lot who had wronged him in chapter 14, 14. I mean, 13, 13. All right, so how did the fearful, cowardly Abraham become this fearless, brave Abraham? One word, repentance. Repentance. How did this change take place in Abraham? There's just one thing that stands between chapter 12 and chapter 14. An altar. An altar. At that altar, Abraham confesses to God his sin and his disgust with himself. At that altar, Abraham asks God to change him from being a fearful coward who dishonored God into a fearless, courageous man who honors God. At that altar, Abraham says, I'm not the man I should be, but by the grace of God, I will become the man that I would be. At that altar, he says, in essence, the words of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Abraham says, I am myself, I'm a coward. I can't do brave things, but I can do brave things. I can do courageous things. I can do right things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And God says, yes, you can, Abraham, because as you yield yourself to me, then what will happen is described in Philippians 2.13. God that will work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'll work in you, Abraham. Through your repentance and your yielding to me, I'll change what you will. I'll change what you do so it will please me. So in chapter 12, we saw that Abraham was not thinking right. It was not right for him to be full of fear. We saw that Abraham that was not talking right. He was not saying right things to Sarah. We saw an Abraham that was not doing right by not protecting his wife and claiming she was just his sister, not his wife. In chapter 14, we see a converted Abraham, a transformed Abraham, an Abraham who's now thinking right. No fear if God's with him. He's now talking right. He's saying that Lot is my brother, calling his Lot his brother. He's pulling Lot close into him. We see an Abraham who's doing right. He's training his armed servants to pursue the captors, delivered Lot. What we see here in Abraham he was not right in chapter 12, and now he's right in chapter 14. And so what has God given to us to do that for us, to change us? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God has given us the Bible for doctrine, to show us what is right. For reproof, to show us where we are not right. For correction to show us how we can get right. For instruction to show us how we can stay right. So we can stop being the Abraham of chapter 12 and become the Abraham of chapter 14. So in verse 14, we see this act of supreme bravery that Abraham had this wonderful opportunity to not hide. And he did it. And that closed the chapter on 12. And there's another thing that, of his act of repentance. Whereas Lot had pushed himself away, Abraham pulls him in and calls him brother. And the quarrel is past. It's a thing of the past for Abraham. It's forgotten, it's forgiven, it's never going to be brought up again. It's the we be brethren man now. And so what Abraham has done is he has now become the essence of Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Abraham said, I'm a friend of Lot's, and I will love him at all times. Even in the time of the hottest argument and fight, I will love him. And Abraham says, I will view myself as Lot's brother. When adversity comes, when the adversity of being taken captive comes, Abraham said, I was born for that. I was born for that adversity. Nothing's going to stop me. And so Lot's going to see what a real brother now looks like. And Lot's going to see Abraham, who's either going to deliver him or die, trying to deliver him. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the friend that loves at all times. During the times when we were lost sinners in rebellions against him, he loved us. A friend loving at all times. He was literally born for our adversity when he was born, the angels came and they said, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He is the brother that was born for our adversity, to meet the need of us to be saved from our sins. He was, born, he was born to not only risk his life to save us, but to die to save us from our sins. He was born to justify us. He was born to save us from hell. Just 318 men, Abraham goes out. Gives us the exact number, 318. If it's there's 317, it wouldn't have been as good. There's 318. Well, not about 300, but 318. And he stands there against this myriad of soldiers, and they're thinking to themselves. See, Gideon gave his men the opportunity, if they were afraid, to go home. Abraham didn't do that. Wise man. <laughs> Gideon stood there with 300, and Abraham stands there with 318. But God did, and we'll see our next time, a great victory with just 300. God seems to like 300. He just 300. And Abraham could repeat the words of Asa in Second Chronicles fourteen eleven. Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it's nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go against this multitude, O Lord. Thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for teaching us a little bit today of what it means that you are the God of Abraham.
0: In Jesus' name, amen. Tom, today you touched on the pride of Lot who wanted to separate from Abraham. Can you talk about the issue of pride in a person who refuses to accept God as their creator and wants to stay separated from him?
1: You know, there's a great verse that tells us the problem with pride in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. It's a verse in which Peter is saying to the younger people that they should submit themselves to the older people. This is really hard to submit yourselves to another person because it cuts right across pride. And Peter says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And then Peter goes on to say, yea, all of you be subject. In other words, submit yourself, bow your will, give in. He says, all of you be subject one to another. And then he says, be clothed with humility. I mean, these are rough words. This is like, don't just do it because you got to do it. Put on the clothes of humility so that you see yourself in the mirror as a humble person. Other people see you as a humble person. And Peter said, that's how you should be clothed. That's how you should look. So Peter, we would say, Peter, why should I do this? Cuts across my grain, this is not what I normally want to do. Why should I humble myself? And Peter gives this great explanation, very simple. He put it like this. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. He says, you know why you should do this? Let me tell you why. Because it's a matter of God. It's an issue with God. He said, if you clothe yourself With pride, you know what God's gonna do? He's gonna stick his hand out in your chest. You may wanna come to God, and God's saying, When you're clothed in pride, you are not going anywhere with me. Certainly not in the area of friendship. No friendship with God if you're proud. If you're proud, forget about it. You're not getting anywhere with God. You're not gonna have friendship with God. As a matter of fact, God says, I will resist you. I will push you back. But to the contrary, Peter says, God giveth grace to the humble. In other words, if you're humble, you're clothed in humility, God says, there's going to be no hand in your chest. As a matter of fact, my two hands are going to change position to Be opening, in other words, welcoming. My two hands are going to be like the embrace. Come, I want to hug you. I want to embrace you if you're clothed in humility. It's all got to do with what you're wearing, what your clothes are, Peter says. If you're clothed in humility, oh, you got God's invitation, his welcome, his help, his grace. What's grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Getting what I don't deserve is grace. He said, you're going to get all of that because I love humility. It says about Moses, our leader, the leader of the Jewish people is Moses. And what it says about Moses is that he was the meekest man in all the earth. What it says about our God, the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people, the Lord Jesus Christ, He said about himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. Humility, it's all about humility. And so to be humble is to be on God's team. It's to be on God's side. It's to have, God says, I I can't give you enough grace if you're humble. Pride, it's to be on the other side. There's no friendship with God, with the proud. There's friendship with God, with the humble. And then he said, by the Jewish prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 57, 15. I want you to listen to what he says. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. This is God speaking. He is describing himself as the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy this is, the, this is the God of the Jewish people, the God of the universe, the only Lord God that exists. And he describes himself, high, lofty, inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and the holy place. Oh, now listen to who he's living with. He says, I dwell with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know what that says? That says God is saying, as great as I am, as high as I am, as holy as I am, I love to be with the person who thinks nothing of himself, who thinks of himself contritely, whose humble spirit, who actually comes to me and thinks of himself as a person that is crushed, as a person that has nothing, as a person who is greatly needy. And God says, you know what I love to do with this person? I love to revive him. I love to give him the life. I love to resuscitate him. And he says, this is what I love to do, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones, if for no other reason. This verse in Isaiah 57:15 tells us, Let me fit you with a new coat, a coat of humility. Please wear it. Why? Because God says, You wear that coat, you wear those clothes. I'm for you. You're my friend, you're my heart. What am I going to do for you? Revive you. Revive you. Make you live. How long? Live forever. Live eternally. Live in my house without days, without for without without an end forever. That alone tells us why it's so important to accept a creator, which is a humble thing to do to come to him and to say, the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator. He's my God. And I humbly accept that.
0: Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. We'd like to encourage you to make a contribution and donation to continue this program on this station, as well as supporting Israel Restoration Ministries and the Jewish Evangelism Outreach. If you'd like to donate, go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org to donate online, or call us at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051, or go to friendshipwithgod.org to donate online. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow at this same time.